Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. Hello. Today's podcast is a summary of and response to an excellent conversation that took place in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group between September 12th and about September 18th. I've asked each of the people who made contributions if I could refer to their contributions and their names, and each of them have agreed. My aim in what follows is to pick up the salient points made by each, add some context, particularly in terms of how each of these positions reflects prominent themes or the sub-themes in broader Christian culture, and then put these comments in play with each other and with some content from the Integration Project which is a project that I have created and that aims at integrating faith, and primarily Christian faith, and life, or the understandings and experiences that relate to everyday living. This type of podcast, where I focus on and examine a particular conversation in the Untangling Christianity Facebook group, represents a new approach for me. And so I would really value your further comments and feedback, both to my responses and about the approach itself. Also, I think that listeners will find this type of podcast to be much denser than most and to move faster than most. This brings to mind some advice that my mentor gave me when I started my graduate degree. He told me that some texts just cannot be understood with one reading. They require two or three readings at least. So despite my best efforts to be clear in what follows, if you find a point or a comment to be elusive, I would recommend re-listening. Hopefully, the content will reward the extra effort. The conversation began in response to episode number 149, when Anna commented that churches do in fact try hard to engage with outsiders, and that many are effective. I offered two perspectives by way of reply. So, I'm going to just, uh, parenthetically here, I'm going to give a little introduction, read some comments, that were written in the UC Facebook, the Untangling Facebook group, and then offer some comments on each. But I'll introduce each one of those comments that's a written comment. So I wrote, First, in my view, most, if not all, churches have no idea how to engage with outsiders on their own terms, rather than on Christian terms. Particularly where doing so means asking ourselves and the non-Christians, what's in it for them? to participate in a Christian event, a church service, etc. Second, again in my view, most, if not all, churches have no idea that the preceding approach is necessary, or could even be helpful. Because the typical evangelical mentality is that, quote, we have all the answers, or at least we have all the answers that count. That's what I wrote. Amy then questioned whether my church experience was simply uncommonly bad, and I offered that it had been fairly broad and I think fairly common. And then the conversation broadened as Amy and Anna interacted about what Anna's negative church experience has been and why it may have happened. There were many comments made that I think are valuable, and I would like to highlight a few here before going on. The comments that I'm highlighting don't obviously have all the context added. I haven't highlighted the entire comment, but they are in order 
in the order in which they occurred in the conversation. Amy wrote, The church and Christians should try to engage with unbelievers respectfully, where they are, of course, and acknowledge the validity of their experiences and their intelligence. But at the end of the day, Christ-slash-Christianity makes a truth claim that must be addressed. It can't forever be sidestepped. And although a person will become the best version of themselves once they are in right relationship with God, that's because because right relationship with God is what we were designed for. End of comment. Anna then wrote, In a nutshell, I was given a choice between denying my personal spiritual experiences because they didn't align with church certainties, interpretations, or understandings, or being excluded from the Christian community, spiritually speaking. But I couldn't align myself with their certainties at the cost of myself and the ongoing investment God was making in my life. So I chose exclusion. End of comment. Amy then wrote, Do you ever wonder if your personal spiritual experiences originate with the one triune God? Or with other beings in the heavenly realm, perhaps bent on deception? End of comment. Anna replied, It isn't that I believe that I or anyone else is somehow above deceit. I just focus my attention on God's promise to lead us into all truth, rather than tremble at the prospect of deceit. Scripture or relationship with others, I trust the Spirit to guide me into the truth of the matter. If I were to be operating out of a fear-based regarding deceit, I would have to shut down my heart and let nothing in or out. I won't live that way. End of comment. At this point, I asked Amy some specific questions based on her answers about what she looked for in a church. I wrote, Amy, you mentioned that in order for you to attend a church, you would need to A. Hear the word of God preached, and B. Sense the Holy Spirit's movement among its people. How do you recognize these things? What do they mean? In other words, Can a church base its teaching on the Bible and not be, quote, preaching the word of God, end quote? Is any teaching that claims the Bible as its authority source valid? Or how do you recognize the Holy Spirit and what constitutes its movement among people? The only answer that I would dispar as as illegitimate is God lets us know by the Holy Spirit. I think that this is illegitimate because if the disagreeing parties are already Christian, then obviously the Holy Spirit is helping them too. But they are disagreeing. End of comment. I'm glad that my questions could act in some way as a catalyst, and it was Anna's response to these questions that really accelerated the conversation. I want to read some of Anna's reply examine some of this subject matter more deeply, and then dig into the next conversation. Anna wrote, I have asked myself these questions a thousand times, usually in the form of, 
quote, will the real Jesus please stand up? End quote. Because everyone seems to have a different experience of God, different ideas about God, different certainties that all claim to be the one, quote, truth of God, end quote, to the exclusion of all other interpretations, ideas, opinions, viewpoints, except for those who align themselves with that person. And these certainties seem to correlate to specific traditions, belief structures, and viewpoints, or lenses, of people that all claim to be led by the same spirit of truth. It feels like each person seems to pick their favorite certainties, and they want others to align with their certainties, and they will claim, quote, biblical authority, end quote, as their power-grabbing tool to force alignment. But each person or group of people, denomination, community, etc., has a different interpretation of the Bible, which they use to assert their unique grasp on God's one truth, because apparently they are more special to God than all others. End of comment. So the question I want to look at is, what themes can be identified in the conversation to this point? I think the main theme that I'm seeing concerns interpretation. Specifically, and Anna's last comment identifies this quite clearly, we have what could be called a conflict of interpretations, something that one of my favorite philosophers talked about quite a bit. There are four things I want to note here. First, conflicting interpretations are natural and I think, in fact, necessary. I would say that this is due to human finitude, fallibility, and fallenness, where finitude is essentially not being omniperspectival or having a limited perspective. Fallibility is having the potential to be mistaken. And fallenness comes back to this notion of deceit that Amy and Anna discussed above, the ability to be deceived and to be, in fact, self-deceived. Second, the necessity and naturalness of conflicting interpretations does not, however, imply that all interpretations are equal or equally valid, or that one cannot adjudicate between competing interpretations because they are all equal. This is simply not true. Third, however, instead of right and wrong interpretations, which seldom occur when we're dealing with matters that are in any way complex, I believe that we are best to think in terms of better and worse interpretations. Fourth, all of us, all the time, are actually interpreting. From a Christian perspective, this point could be expressed this way. God knows, humans interpret. God knows, humans interpret. This does not mean that humans cannot or should not make knowledge claims but it recognizes, on the one hand, that our knowledge claims are limited and fallible, and, on the other hand, emphasizes that humans are not like God. Claiming not to interpret is, in Christian terms, then claiming to be like God, which for Christians is idolatry and something to be strongly avoided. So if we take the four points that I have raised above as benchmarks, you may not agree with them all, but let's assume them to be valid at this point. 
In looking at Anna's comment, I can pick out a theme based on a word that she repeats several times that gives me some idea of the kind of opposition she probably faced and may still face. And that word is certainties. Keep that word in mind as I reread Anna's comment. I'm going to read the very same comment I just read with the word certainties in mind. Anna wrote, I have asked myself these same questions a thousand times, usually in the form of, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because everyone seems to have a different experience of God, different ideas about God, different certainties that all claim to be the one truth of God, to the exclusion of all other interpretations, ideas, opinions, viewpoints, except for those who align themselves with that person. And these certainties seem to correlate to specific traditions, belief structures, and viewpoints, or lenses, of people that all claim to be led by the same spirit of truth. It feels like each person seems to pick their favorite certainties, and they want others to align with their certainties, and they will claim biblical authority as their power-grabbing tool to force alignment. But each person, or group of people, denomination, community, etc., has a different interpretation of the Bible, which they all use to assert their unique grasp on God's one truth. Because apparently they are all more special to God than all others. End of comment. What I take the repetition of this word, certainties, to imply is that the people that Anna was dealing with had a very particular relationship to the things that they believed. Specifically, the notion of certainty when it comes to knowledge claim knowledge claims, like what things are really, quote, God's truth, end quote, comes from the Enlightenment and is now referred to as modernist philosophy. From an Enlightenment or modernist perspective, certainty was not only desirable but achievable, because it was thought that the important things in life should be able to be demonstrated in a clear, indubitable fashion. Indubitable means uh, unable to be doubted in a manner that was conducive to knowing with certainty. Now, this dovetails very well with what is, for me, a very strong reason for believing that the biblical text is worth examining more closely, and that is this. The insight that the Bible offers about what it means to be human. About who and what human beings are, in other words. In this case, the biblical authors make the strong claim that human, humans and God are related, but also very different. And one of the chief differences concerns these three components of finitude, fallibility, and fallenness. The implication of these components is that humans are by nature beings who function best when they are in relationships of what my mentor likes to call dependent independence. In other words, I function best when I am able to partner with others who, on the one hand, can offer resources to assist with my inbuilt limitations, particularly my finitude, fallibility, and fallenness, and I depend upon these others to the degree that they are aligned with my chief needs and goals. Now, for instance, I would express my own chief need and goal as the following. The need to be in relationship with someone who knows me truly and loves me deeply, and to know and love that one in return. I'll repeat that. 
the need to be in relationship with someone who knows me truly and loves me deeply, and to know and love that one in return. That is what I believe to be my chief need, and so it is my chief goal. And this is also what I believe to be the chief need of all human beings. I will return to explain and elaborate this point more fully in a future podcast. For now, the important point is that the person or being who most fosters that goal and fulfills that need is the one upon whom I wish to be most dependent. Now, if you've listened to any number of podcasts, you will have heard me say that one of the reasons that I embrace Christianity is because through it, now, if you have listened to any number of podcasts, you will have heard me say that one of the reasons that I embrace Christianity is because through it, I am able to be my best self. Connecting the dots, being one's best self is a result of the reality of functioning best, as I've expressed earlier, the notion I expressed earlier, rather. In other words, proper functioning results in becoming a competent choice maker, becoming, in my case, the type of father, spouse, son, and friend that I most want to be, and being the best version of myself in the world. Similarly, how competently I make choices, how well I embody the type of father, spouse, son, and friend that I most want to be, and how much I am able to be the best version of myself in the world represents a feedback loop for me to evaluate how legitimate my my understandings about proper functioning are and how well I'm actually following through with my commitment to that notion. I want to raise an important caveat here, which is that our, what I've called chief needs and goals, as well as what constitutes our best selves, are obviously interpreted understandings. Specifically, these orientations and values are formed from our early life and informed through the experiences and understandings that we acquire as we grow. However, these orientations and values always begin through absorbing our surroundings and adopting uncritically whatever messages or understandings are prevalent there. Um, We do this uncritically because as children, we don't have the ability to be critical of our environment, and neither, in some cases, does this ability develop sufficiently as we grow. Further, in almost all cases, we as human beings spend very little time as adults examining how we have interpreted the situations and events that have contributed to forming these orientations and values, or assessing our skill level as interpreters of ourselves, and even less time seeking informed second opinions about the validity of our interpretations. Now, sometimes this happens through counseling and other things. We get this feedback through people who have some expertise in some of these areas, and this is very helpful. But typically the result is that those things we consider to be our chief needs and goals, as well as what constitutes our best selves, are understandings whose validity depends upon a critical assessment of both the understandings themselves and of our own skill as interpreters. The implication is that our chief needs and goals are cut. The implication is that our chief needs and goals and our understandings of our best selves must all be open to modification and correction. This is a massive subject, the idea of becoming what I would call a competent reader of myself and my history. 
and discussing it sufficiently will need to await a future podcast. The main takeaway in this regard is that determining our chief needs and goals, as well as determining what constitutes being our best selves, should not be seen as givens, but understood as tasks that each of us needs to undertake, and that we have all been undertaking already, regardless of how conscious we are of how we have been interpreting, or how competent we are, or have been, as interpreters. And so the crucial need to become a competent reader of oneself and one's history. Returning to the notion then of dependent independence, my point here first is that who we are able to become as people, and indeed how well, by which I mean how lovingly and how truthfully we are able to engage with ourselves, with others, and with the world around us, depends on our willingness and commitment to establishing the best relationships of dependence and cultivating our independence in light of these relationships. In fact, one of the greatest rewards that I give myself by virtue of being independent, by having the power and the authority to make choices and to act, is the relationships of dependence that I choose. Because we are all dependent on someone, even if it is mainly, and some might believe, only on ourselves. And frankly, history has shown me that I am not always, or not alone, my own, if you will, best keeper. I don't always make the best choices or choose the best actions, even when it comes to serving my own needs and interests. Now, as an aside, I have actually just offered a very clear reason that uses no loaded theological language or Christian jargon to explain why I believe that people should engage in a relationship with the Christian God. Further, I have based my explanation on information that is entirely accessible to others, especially to non-Christians. This involves at least three things. First, I offered a general but clear perspective on human nature, that being the notion that human finitude, fallibility, and fallenness mean that humans function best and can meet their chief goals and be most fully themselves when they engage in a specific type of relationship, this relationship of dependent independence. Second, I offered specific explanations of my view that are personal, so they're based on my experience, that are practical, so they're aimed at right functioning and towards very understandable goals, and that are verifiable in the sense that I can get feedback from others about, for instance, how well my key relationships of dependence actually seem to be meeting my primary goal. Third, I can offer corroboration. I can offer evidence from my own life as to the success of this relationship with God. And I can also offer commiseration. I can empathize with others regarding the problems inherent in this relationship and, frankly, without this relationship with God. So it's the awareness that there are benefits, there are also negatives, and to be aware of both, to be able to communicate and be honest about both. The point that I'm trying to make is not that everyone will agree with my reasons and explanations due to my manner of presentation. This is not what I'm saying, and this is not the point. Instead, the point here is that my reasons and explanations are accessible and understandable to most, if not all, audiences. This is because they're framed in everyday language, not jargon. 
and they focus on personal human goals, not divine imperatives like, quote, Jesus' death shows you how much God loves you, end quote, or eschatological reasons like, quote, only those who accept Jesus will avoid going to hell, end quote. So trying to persuade those who reject Christian views and sources of authority with Christian views and sources of authority is not only futile, it's insulting. In other words, it refuses not only to value the other person and their views, but represents a failure among Christians to affirm that Christians believe the Bible to be true. They do not know it to be true. So once again, this is the point about avoiding divine imperatives, saying that because Jesus' death shows you how much God loves you, this or that, you know, should be your response. And avoiding eschatological reasons or arguments like only those who accept Jesus are going to go to hell, because these are not perspectives that non-Christians agree with, that, that they find compelling, that they ha- that have any sense of authority or value for them. Instead, a conversation such as I am proposing is easy for those outside of the Christian faith to understand and contribute to. So this is one example of how to engage with non-Christians, if you like, on their terms, or to create a dialogue, not a dispute, that can recognize the value of each party's contribution and that solicits the views and interactions of outsiders, rather than putting outsiders to Christianity in a place where they must assent to our Christian views or, more likely, just reject them out of hand. This does not nullify or disregard a theological view or God's perspective on the matter. It simply understands that this perspective has no meaning and therefore is a conversation stopper for non-Christians. Further, if I cannot articulate my own personal human reasons for choosing Christian belief, how can I expect to show other human beings why they should reconsider a Christian perspective in terms of what's in it for them? Now again, as another aside, and again as a necessity of having these extended conversations, we need to engage with a number of ancillary but related and dependent notions in order to do full justice to the subject matter being discussed. So as another aside, the notion that Christians are to love God for naught, which means essentially to love and serve God for no seeming benefit to themselves, and the notion that Christians should do everything for God's glory, or if you like, everything for God's advancement, are very prominent in evangelical Christianity. And so the idea of presenting Christianity from the perspective of, what's in it for you? Unless, again, we frame that in theological or eschatological terms like, you get to go to heaven, or you get to avoid hell, which I've already noted are actually self-defeating for this type of conversation. The perspective of what's in it for me likely seems foreign, if not simply wrong, to most Christians. I want to state very clearly that these two notions are, in my understanding, completely mistaken. In other words, that it should be wrong to approach, uh, uh, foreign or wrong, to approach uh, the matter of Christianity from the perspective of what's in it for me. And here again, I will present part of my argument with reference to the integration project. However, I want to stop recording at this point because I've put a lot of content into this podcast. 
and I will instead pick up from this point on the next podcast. So podcast number two in this series will begin by addressing the reasons why Christianity is cut. So podcast number two in this series will begin by addressing the reasons why considering Christianity from the perspective of what's in it for me is not only valid but necessary, and examining why this perspective likely seems foreign, if not simply wrong, to most Christians. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.